Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be exploring the rich tradition of Arabic poetry from West Africa. Although the different peoples of West Africa speak and write in many different languages, Arabic has a history in the region stretching back the best part of a thousand years. And among the many genres of Arabic literature that have flourished in the region, poetry is perhaps the most beloved and alive of them all. Today, we're going to be exploring the tradition of Arabic Madhi poetry, poetry in praise of the Prophet Muhammad. But as we'll hear, this poetry does more than just praise. It's intended to do things as well, to drive the reciter, the poet, and the listener forward on their journey through the Prophet Muhammad towards God. Joining, or rather leading me in our discussion today, is Professor Anudamini Ogunayake, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia and he's the author of Poetry in Praise of Prophetic Perfection, a study of West African Arabic Madhi poetry and its precedents, which was published by the Islamic Text Society in 2020. Hello, hello, Damani. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm really excited about our conversation today because we're going to be talking about Arabic, Arabic literature, Arabic poetry in West Africa. Although many of us, perhaps not us, but many listeners, uh, many people out there might understandably think of Arabic as a Middle Eastern language. Arabic, of course, has been a language uh, used across the Islamic world and in West Africa for the best part of the past millennium. People have been reading reciting and indeed writing Arabic poetry in West Africa. So uh, Africa is a place not just of the reception of of Arabic, but also the production of really fine, polished, eloquent, beautiful, inspirational Arabic poetry and Arabic religious poetry, which is what we're going to be looking at today. And a particular genre that you'll be telling us about, which you've written about and which you've translated. So to start us off, Ludomini, can you give us an outline of the development of Arabic literature in West Africa and of the kinds of people who are writing, reciting and listening to it over the centuries? Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, as, as you mentioned, you know, Arabic has been a presence in West Africa for at least a millennium. You know, it came with Islam, you know, the, the language of the Quran, the language of Islamic scholarship, of Islamic law is Arabic. And so Arabic literacy came wherever Islam went. And in the case of West Africa, we have records of Islam, for example, in Senegambia in the 10th century, in Kanem-Borno, uh, what's today northeastern Nigeria, 
around the same time period, the king there converted in the 12th uh, century, the kingdoms uh, converted uh, to Islam there. And so Arabic literature spread along with Islam uh, in, in these areas. And so the people who uh, are most associated with the production of Arabic literature are Islamic scholars, uh, people working in courts, uh, members of, of Sufi orders. But the interesting thing about poetry uh, here is that poetry, even though to write good Arabic poetry, you really need to know Arabic very well. You need to know the rules of prosody and, and, and all of these uh, other poetic conventions. Well, in West Africa, we have some early uh, examples of Arabic poetry dating back to the 12th century. There's this figure, Abu Ishaq al-Kanami, al uh, Abu Ishaq Ibrahim al-Kanami, that is from the kingdom of Kanembono. Uh, he traveled to Marrakesh um, and then uh, actually uh, to Andalusia and then back and he wrote poems, uh, actually improvised on the spot a poem when he came and met the Amuhad uh, em emperor, wrote poems defending his blackness against people who held it uh, against him. And he became a, a friend of this great Andalusian poet and kind of pioneer in the Madih genre, this genre of poetry and praise of the prophet Al-Fazazi. Uh, so yeah, this is a figure. So we already have the, the you know, manuscripts and uh, poems from this figure as early as the 12th century in, in, in West Africa. So this literature, uh, Arabic literature, Arabic poetry has been around uh, for a long, long time in West Africa. And the poetry is one of the interesting thing about it is it's not just elite scholarly figures or people in courts who listen to and, and enjoy, it, enjoy it. Loads of people, even with, let's say, limited Arabic literacy, memorize these poems, sing them, recite them, all the way down to the present day. Um, one interesting fact about Arabic poetry in West Africa is there's this poem that that's one of my uh, poem, this program that's one of my guilty pleasures called Emir Ashwara. It's kind of like American Idol, but for Arabic poetry. Um, and it's, I think, run out of Abu Dhabi, broadcast out of Abu Dhabi. And for the past decade or so, there's been a West African in the finals. And in 2019, Mohamedou Lamin Job from Senegal won. He, he literally, he won the, you know, like the, uh, the Ar best Arabic poets in the world, you know, national or international TV competition. It was won by a Senegalese uh, Figure. So there's there's still quite a life to this tradition of uh, uh, Arabic poetry and enjoyment of Arabic literature in West Africa. Um, and in a certain sense, uh, other other people have likened it to Latin in in Ireland, for example. So the Irish, is far, the far far west of the world, Ireland, very very far from Italy, but they kept up uh, production of Latin and genres of. Uh, Latin poetry and things like that, acrostics and other things like that, that had kind of fallen out of favor or gone extinct in other places in, in the world were kept up by these uh, these monks and uh, other figures, literary figures in, in, in the far west of the, the Latinate world. And West Africa has done, a, you could, there's some analogies you could draw to that in, in the enduring life of Arabic literature in West Africa. Uh, as I said, kind of first and foremost amongst Islamic scholars and people deeply rooted in, in the Sufi tradition, but not limited to them uh, by, by any means. Um, Arabic poetry in particular is enjoyed uh, by kind of all classes uh, of, of people, um, whether they're literate in Arabic outside of uh, that, or they just enjoy reciting and listening to, to the sounds of the poetry. Well, that's really helpful to, to, to set us up because 
you're giving us this this sense of the the broad geography of the regions we're talking about uh, uh, today, or at least the, the regions where Arabic is, is is used across West Africa. From well, I mean, you've mentioned Marrakesh and what's today Morocco, which have been one of the the major, together with Fez in Morocco, one of the major sort of uh, scholarly transmission points, I guess, and then the various West African kingdoms ruled by by local Muslim rulers, whether down through what's now Mauritania, through Senegal, Nigeria, and, and, and indeed Gambia, inwards, of course, in places like Mali, uh, Niger, and elsewhere. So this very large space where Arabic develops then, as you mentioned, in the courts of these various kingdoms and in these sort of royal courts, Arabic can be used in various times as a as an administrative language, a language of law, you know, kind of with the ulama, the, the the scholars, the writing of histories, the writing of royal histories or the histories of these kingdoms, including often the histories of of sheikhs, of teachers and of Sufis, as well as of, of, of sultans. And then, as you also mentioned, the, the Sufis, the, the Sufi orders, which have been tremendously important in, in African history and indeed a Salah today. And this gives us a sense in turn, as you've alluded to, of the, the real range of, of, of literary works then, of, of prose works, philosophy, the sciences, legal, biographical, historical, and the whole range of poetic works, which are perhaps the ones that are most alive and uh, alive and well and kicking online as well as uh uh, in so many other media that perhaps we'll, we'll come to as we go on. <clears throat> but we're going to be focusing then on today on one specific genre of Arabic poetry in West Africa, the Madi, or as you've already mentioned, the praise poetry, or more specifically poetry and praise of the Prophet Muhammad. So can you introduce us to the key characteristics of Madi poetry and to some key Madi poets? Yeah, so Madih um, in general just means praise. And one early uh, theorist of Arabic poetry said, really all, all poetry is just description, was, and positive description is Madih, and negative description is kind of hijab, insult, or lampoon. And so Madih is half of poetry, at least half of poetry is, is, is Madih. So as you mentioned, well, I'm focused particularly on Madih Nabawi praise in, po in, in poems in praise of the Prophet. And those uh, begin really with the Prophet's companions, particularly Hassan ibn Thabit and Ka'b ibn Zuhair, Abdullah ibn Urwaha, these, these companions of his that were poets. And the Prophet used to encourage them to write poetry against, the enemy, against their enemies and write poems in praise of him. And so at the time in, in uh, pre-Islamic Arabia, early Islamic Arabia, Poetry was very, very, probably the, the most important art form uh, at the time. Amongst nomadic peoples, usually it's jewelry and poetry. You're not going to be carrying around sculptures and, and, and things like that. But the, the arts of language are, are highly, highly prized. And amongst the Arabs, uh, you know, they had these poems, the Mu'alaqat, these hanging poems that were hung on the Kaaba before the advent of, of Islam. And those took, took the form of what's called a Qasida, which is a long monoran ode. And one of the oldest of them uh, we have is from, let's say, uh, figure Imr Qais, uh, who starts off his Qasida um, with what's called uh, a Naseeb. So most Qasidas have a tripartite structure, a three-part structure, in which you start with a Naseeb. Um, and his is kind of like the classic Naseeb, Imr Qais's, and it starts, Qifa nabki min al-habibi wa manzili. So let's stop and weep in memory of a beloved and a place in the drop of the valley between Dakhul and Hamal. Um, 
So the Nasib starts usually with the poet mourning the absence of the beloved at the Aflao, the ruins of the beloved's campsite, mourning the passage of time, these other things like that. Then it moves from the Nasib into the, the Rahil section, which the poet journeys in quest of his desire. And then the last part of the Qasida is called the Medih section, in which the poet praises the patron, you know, hoping for some patronage, for some money for the poetry, or po uh, praises the beloved or her tribe, or things like that too. So what happens is then later on uh, in the early Islamic period, and uh, even later on as, as courts become bigger and you get kings wanting qasidas in, in praise of them, um, the, the Rahil section kind of drops out, this kind of desert journey kind of drops out. Again, as also poets are becoming more urbane, then that, you know, there's a, this kind of move, um, Abu Nuwas and Abu Tamam and other people against the the nomadic kind of poetic uh, spirit to have a more contemporary poetry that fits the urban settings. So this Rahil, this desert journey section amongst some poets drops out and you just get the Nasib, this kind of romantic uh, um, beginning of the poem and then a section of Medih praising. And it usually goes in kind of the following way. So you have your romantic Nasib and then you have your uh, self-abasement of the poet and then you have praising the object, uh, the patron, or the, the praised object. And then you have uh, a request, you know, either for money from the patron or a request from God for benedictions or, or, or something like that. And so the, the classics of this Madih uh, Nabawi genre, the genre of poems and praise of the Prophet, they have these early precedents, uh, uh, as I mentioned with Hassan ibn Thabit and Kaab ibn Zuhair especially, who Kaab ibn Zuhair took the classical Qasida structure of Nasib, Rahil, and Madih, the you know, mourning the beloved the, uh, at the campsite, the desert journey, and the praise section, and applied that to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so this kind of set the stage for the classics of the genre, which most of which came about in the in the 13th century, 7th century Hijri. You have figures like Imam Busiri, who wrote probably might be the most famous poem ever, the border, the poem of, of the cloak, or I should say the second poem of the cloak, uh, because Kabim Zuhair's poem is also called the border because it's said that when he recited it, the prophet was so pleased with it, he put his cloak around him. Now, uh, the legend behind Busiri's poem is that he was paralyzed and he composed this poem in his head while he was bedridden. And when he finished writing it, composing it, he had a dream in which the prophet was pleased with him and put his cloak on him. And he woke up and the cloak was on him and he was healed of his paralysis. And so that's the legend behind Busiri's border poem. But so that that lovely, really beautiful poem that's recited everywhere uh, all over the world today um, is, is kind of one of the, the most influential models of Madih poetry. Some of Ibn Farid's poetry as well, too, from the, around the same time period, has also been highly influential. But then really after this period, the genre of Madih Nabawi of poetry and praise of the Prophet just takes off and it becomes super influential everywhere throughout the Muslim world, but particularly in North and West Africa. People recite these poems at Maulid celebrations, celebrations of the Prophet's birthday. People recite these uh, poems at uh, when children are born, they're recited at funerals, they're, they're recited um, when people are going on journeys, they're recited in some places. Uh, like in West Africa and Indonesia, every Monday and Thursday nights. Um, uh, so they're, they're, they're really, um, they're really, really popular. 
Uh, so I'll, I'll recite one uh, verse from the Borda that, that these are two of my favorite verses from the Borda uh, to give you a sense of kind of what it's like. Um, and then the other verse, فَكَيْفَ يُدْرِكُ فِي دُنْيَا حَقِيقَتُهُ قَوْمٌ يَامٌ تَسَلُّ عَنْهُ بِحُلُّمِ So that translates roughly the virtues or the virtue of the messenger of God has no limit. So it cannot be expressed by human speech or expressed with the mouth. Uh, and how in this world can his reality be comprehended by people sleeping, distracted by their dreams? Um, it's another verse that's attributed to Busiri, Muhammadun Basharun Walaysa Kal Bashar, Hajar. Muhammad is a man and yet not like other men, for he is a ruby and people are like stones. Which uh, one of my favorite poets of the 20th century, uh, poet Sheikh Ibrahim Yas from Senegal, uh, takes up in one of his poets, he goes, Tadakartu man huwa lil wara kulluhum kutu. Uh, so he has this lovely pun on Kutu and Yakutu, which is, I, I recall he who is to humanity, all of them, nourishment, for pebbles they are, while Mustafa, the chief, is a ruby opalescent. Um, and so this, this, this poetry um, combines things from lots of different genres. So it, it combines things from the, the old Pasida tradition, uh, pre-Islamic Qasida tradition. It combines things from the courtly traditions of Qasida to Madh, in which people would write um, poets like Mutanabi, for example, would write poems in praise of rulers and kings. It combines things from uh, early Sufi uh, love poetry, combines things from just ordinary romantic love poetry. It combines things, uh, takes elements from the Sira literature, that is literature, the biography of the prophet, the Shema'il literature, descriptions of the Prophet's traits, the Marazi literature, this literature describing the battles of the early Muslims, um, uh, Shiite poetry in praise of the Ahlul Bayt, all of these and things from Tafsir, and all of these things kind of get included into this um, genre of poetry in, in praise of, of the Prophet. And there's one more poem I'd like to recite because it just illustrates how it brings together all of these different uh, elements in, in, in a way. And generally, the Mandih poetry generally is written in a monorhyme uh, as well, too, in the kind of classic structure of Islamic poetry in which you have a bait, which is two hemistitches put together. Um, and so I'll, I'll see if I can. This this poem is again from Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, uh, 20th century. Um, I don't think I can recite this without singing it. So I'll. I'll uh, um, Please do. Uh, all right. Um, Hello, Thank you. Uh, 
الطيري مرادك المصطفى على عينه وإلا فموت فيه شوقا لأنصري ولولا تذذه في جنان بنوره لما حنا نحو خل خلد كل مبصر وليت رسول الله كان مسعيرا لبرحم نادا خالدا كل مسعر وليت يكسبتني أدليني فوقه وليت يكسبتني كجفر وليت أكون اليوم تربة عليه وليت أراك للأمين مبشر وليت يوما كنت شربة مائه وحمل كاسا للبشير المنور وعلل نفسا للوصال فعله يجود بوصل للرقيق محرد صلاة على يسين طه محمد مع الآل واصحاب غير مبتر So uh, that poem, uh, you can see the very strong rhythm, very lovely uh, melody kind of carries you along. And the translation is, is just as lovely. Sheikh Ibrahim used to call this, he said, this is the, the poem of the one who's lost his mind. So it is uh, in, in love for the Prophet. So it starts, the love of Mustafa, Mukhtar, these are names for the Prophet, the chosen one, mixed with my innermost heart and permeated my all and my parts, for he is my secret and appearance. When the light of the full moon glows, I turn to his remembrance. I remember him at every sight and every scene. I remember him in all songs and when I taste the sweet, for he is my wine and intoxication for all my life. And I remember him in all trials and in their opposite. And I remember him in my absence, just as in my presence. And I remember him before the beloved. And I do not forget him at the moment of troubling distress. I appreciate no loveliness save his face. For there's no beauty but the face of Al-Mudatte, which is a title of the prophet, which means the one wrapped in a cloak. The idea being that all beauties of the world are the prophet wrapped, kind of wrapped up in, in, in cloaks, in his cloak. So the prophet is, uh, the prophet's beauty is shining through all beauties in, in, in the world. Uh, my goal is for my existence to be the same as his, or for my death to be in longing for him elementally. If not for the delight of his lights in paradise, none would yearn for eternity among those of insight. If only the messenger of God would kindle for Barham, that's a West African version of Ibrahim, the poet's name, and eternal fire burning all. If only I were like his two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein, riding on his shoulders. If only I were like Abu Bakr, the prophet's companion, or Jafar, his nephew. If only I could be today the dust of his sandals. If only I could be the miswak, the toothbrush for Al-Amin, for the prophet. If only I could be for a day a sip of his water or the cupbearer of the illumined Bashir. I console myself with the hope of union so that perhaps he'll grant uh, union a meeting to his freed slave, meaning the poet. A blessing upon Yasin, Taha, Muhammad, these are different type, Quranic titles for the prophet, with his family and companions without exception. So this illustrates this, you know, I wish I were his toothbrush, I wish I were a sip of his water, I wish I were the dust of his sandals, this kind of extreme love, devotion, and veneration for the, the, the person of the prophet, uh, but also this conception of the prophet, not just as a historical person, but as a kind of trans-historical spiritual reality and the poet's uh, connection to love, devotion, and remembrance of this reality in all things at all times, and this love kind of completely consuming uh, the, the poet. And so you see this, these, these kinds of themes again and again and again in different forms, um, in different varieties in Madiha poetry. Um, Often Madih poetry, Madih Nabawi poetry is marked by this 
movement back and forth between the historical person of the prophet. So they have things saying like, oh, he patches his, he patched his own clothes and he was kind to orphans and this and that. And then these descriptions of this metaphysical spiritual reality saying his light was the first thing God created and all of the lights of creation come from him. And so in the Medih uh, Nabawi genre, you have this lovely back and forth between the historical person and the metaphysical uh, spiritual reality. And usually, just as in the Qasida Tamad, the typical ode of praise, whether it was to a ruler or a beloved or something like that, uh, those would end with a supplication and a benediction. Virtually all Medih Nabawi poetry ends with uh, blessings and peace and prayers upon the Prophet and his companions. Often that blessing and peace will be combined with a request for the poet as as well too. Just as if you you were praising and uh, you know uh, I don't know potentate of the Umayyads or something like that, you might ask for money or favors or ransom of of somebody. These you'll often have verses that'll say blessings upon the prophet and his family, a blessing which grants me happiness and success throughout all my life, or a blessing which elevates me through the spiritual path. Uh, or things like that. So this is just kind of a rough introduction to this this vast ocean of of, of poetry. And I, I should mention that this genre of poetry, when you look at the manuscripts in West Africa, kind of dwarfs not only all other genres of poetry, but aside from uh, collections of like Manazola, Fatawa, legal opinions, dwarfs kind of almost all other literature in Arabic. Um, there's people are writing and reciting and copying Medih poetry more than almost anything else. Uh, so it's really, really central uh, to the Arabic literary scene in, in West Africa. Well, thank you so much, Oludamini. You've given us such this, this vivid, not just an auditory, auditory sense, but an auditory link to this ongoing tradition that through your own recitation of Sheikh Ibrahim Niyas, who died in 1975, taking us right back then through this tradition of poetry to the companions of the Prophet Muhammad and the 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 praise, the Mahdi that were 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 made to him by by his own companions. And you've mentioned a, a few key figures along the way from Al Busiri, who died in 1294. That that key figure, Al Busiri, the, the border Sharif, the the mantle of the Prophet, the cloak of the Prophet. And you've given us a sense there too, I think, of two really important things that the, on the one hand, the accumulative nature of tradition. This is a, a tradition of poetry that is handed down, it's traditio, it's literally for the Latin, that which is handed down, but it's it's on the one hand evolving, as you showed from the Qasida, the ode, how this particular element, the praise element sort of detaches and develops and then gathers pace, it accumulates over the time as new poets, but also new ideas or different strands of different types of source material or the different types of texts that you mentioned are sort of brought in and summed up and then transmitted in turn through this really potent uh, genre of the, of the praise poem. And I think another couple of key ideas that you, you raised for us there, one is the, 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 Poetry actually does things. The, the anecdote you mentioned of Al-Busiri, when he's lying sick in bed and he composes the Buddha Sharif, composes his, his cloak of the prophet poem, he's healed. The poems do things. And that is something that when people recite them, these are poems that actually have 
effect, you know, kind mm-hmm. of they, they do things. And um, and this is perhaps something we'll we'll come back to, and not least perhaps in relation to the other key, really major idea, um, a dimension of the tradition and what's been transmitted through these poems is the two dimensions of, or, or the, yeah, the two dimensions of, of, of the prophet that are being addressed here. The historical Muhammad, who, who, who lives out his life till around 632 of the common era in, in Mecca and Medina, and the, as you termed him, the, the metaphysical Muhammad, the Muhammadan reality, as it's sometimes translated into English, or the, the Nur Muhammadi, the light of Muhammad, which according to longstanding Muslim doctrine is, is pre-eternal, that sort of predates the creation of humankind, certainly the creation of the, the birth of the historical Muhammad, and of course is still alive today as the, as the metaphysical prophet mm-hmm. who's been addressed uh, praise, but also being supplicated, being addressed through these poems, and asked to to to, to mediate between the either the poet or the person that, who's reciting or indeed listening to these poems uh, as the mediator between ordinary humanity and and and, and God and the divine reality. So we'll, we'll no doubt pick up on some of these themes as we go deeper, or you take us deeper into the, these poems, but. Let me ask you another question beforehand. After all, we're here to listen to you today. Uh, so for centuries, as we've heard then, West Africa has been one of the great strongholds of, of Sufi Islam, which and many of the great composers of Madi have been Sufi masters, Sufi sheikhs themselves, such as Ibrahim Niyas, whose uh, long poem you recited to us there. So why then have these Madi Pro, po, sorry, praise poems been so important to West African Sufi Muslims? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. It's a kind of interesting thing about Sufism and poetry. Kind of wherever you have Sufism, you have poetry. Uh, whenever there's a Sufi master, uh, usually that Sufi master or sheikh will have a diwan, a collection of his or her own poems, or if they don't, will use poetry to teach uh, and to express and I mean, a lot of, I go through in, in, in the book on poetry and, and praise of prophetic perfection, a lot of different angles which you can understand this. One is how do you F the ineffable, right? So you have these direct mystical experiences. What kind of language is capable of conveying them? Uh, for many reasons, poetry. I mean, one way you can think about it is if you, if you have a direct experience, a kind of vilk, a taste that uh, is not common and familiar to everyone. So let's say you eat durian for the first time and you want to describe it to somebody who hasn't had durian, you know, you have to fall back on metaphors and similes. You have to use poetic language. Um, there's another longstanding tradition in really going back to very early Sufi literature uh, that, that the Sufi is uh, someone who's caught between silence and speech. They can't possibly express what, they, uh, what, what they're experiencing, what they're realizing, but they can't stay silent either. The kind of love it boils up in them. And so they need something that can kind of thread the middle between silence and speech. They need a barzakh or a liminal reality that both unites and divides. And, and, and poetry is, I think, that kind of barzakhi, this liminal kind of speech that's halfway between or barzakh between prose and music, between, uh, in Arabic, you say awrak and adawak, between discursive expression and direct experience. and even the structure of poetry itself, rhythm is a barzakh between eternity and stillness, 
and time uh, and all of the, the uh, classical Arabic and uh, West African Ajami poetry is strictly metered. Rhyme is a barzakh between one sound and many. So the poetry for various reasons seems to be very suited to the kinds of direct uh, experience or mystical experience that the Sufis are trying to uh, cultivate. But in particular in, in, in West Africa, in particular with regard to Madih poetry, West African Sufism, since at least the 15th century, seems to be particularly focused on cultivating a direct encounter with the, the, the Prophet Muhammad, with this Nur Muhammadi, with the spiritual reality of the Prophet, and visions of waking visions, sleeping visions of the Prophet Muhammad, in which the Prophet then becomes the spiritual guide of, of the aspirant are uh, very, very important in West African uh, Sufism. Other, other, you know, it's not limited to West Africa at all. This phenomenon goes it's in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Middle East, all over the place. Um, but this, this was really dominant in, it still is uh, dominant in um, West African Sufism. And so this kind of intimate discourse with the prophet in the prophet's own language is really, really important for West African Sufis as a means of cultivating this intimacy with the person of the prophet, as a means of directly addressing the prophet, uh, as, as a means of establishing this, this relationship uh, with, with the prophet. So there are um, numerous kind of stories and wonderful examples of this. So Sheikh Amadou Bamba um, uh, recounts or murid oral, oral sources that people you know, in, in the tradition of Sheikh Amadou Bamba recount that he started first having his uh, visionary experiences of the Prophet Muhammad when he started writing poetry in praise of the Prophet. So when he started praising the Prophet in poetry, he started then seeing him. Um, and this, these visions of the Prophet were, played a really decisive role in, in his life. You know, according to the hagiographies, he saw the Prophet behind the veil. He wanted to be with the Prophet behind the veil. The Prophet said, the only way you can do this is if I turn you over into the hands of your enemies and you don't spill a drop of blood, even so much as a scorpion's blood. Um, and so this was decisive in uh, uh, Bamba's mission and kind of life works. Similarly, Sheikh Ibrahim Yas um, would uh, recount, uh, I mean, at a certain point, never he never, see, so he never ceased seeing the Prophet. He always was in kind of in a state of visionary encounter with, with, with the Prophet, but that this could be brought on or intensified through the recitation and composition of poetry. And in fact, even today in contemporary times, um, Disciples in various orders, the Tijaniya as well as the Muridiya, uh, even in the Qadariya as well, too, are assigned poems, particularly to produce a vision of the Prophet. So one of Sheikh Ibrahim Yas's poems, which uh, it's really a, a beautiful versification of the description of the Prophet's appearance and character that you'll find in the, the Shema'il uh, description of Tirmidhi, um, uh, is assigned to disciples, uh, you know, recite this before bed and keep reciting it until you get a vision of the Prophet in, in, in your sleep. So these, these poems play a really important role in establishing this relationship of love and focus and devotion between four West African Sufis and, and the Prophet, um, because the poems are believed to carry the barakah and the, the presence of the one praised in them of, of, of the Prophet. Um, and the, yeah, so as you mentioned before, there, there are all kinds of miracles, miraculous things attributed to these poems due to this idea that the the, the, the baraka, the presence of, of the prophet is in the poem. So one of the earliest West African 
poems is from this Mauritanian Sheikh, Sheikh Yadali, who was a Shadali Sufi master as well as a great scholar. Um, and he took, uh, he heard some griots praising a local king and he liked the melody so much. He used the melody to compose his own poem in praise of the prophet. Uh, but because it was based on a griot melody, it's in a non-standard meter. It's not one of the meters of classical Arabic. Um, and the, the griots are traditional West African bards, aren't they? They're, they're sort of that's right, exactly. The traditional West, West African bards. Um, and so Yadali composed this ode in, in favor of the uh, in praise of the Prophet. Very beautiful, called Salatu Rabbi. Salatu Rabbi ma'a salami ala habibi al anami. And so anyway, the, the king got word of this, that somebody had jacked his ode and wasn't too happy. And so it dragged Yadali before him and was going to punish him and uh, said, why have you done this? And Yadali said, oh, I, I did it because I wanted to praise someone who was better than you. And that didn't make the king, <laughs> that didn't improve his situation much. Uh, but the king said, okay, recite it for me. And Yadali recited it. And the king was moved to tears and gave Yadali gifts and sent him away. Yadali also recounts he was on a journey in the Atlantic to try to get some paper. This is in the 18th century paper. I mean, paper is still a very uh, precious resource at the time, and there was a big storm, and Yadali recites the poem, and the sea is calm, and everybody's really happy with him, and they carry him into the city and give him new clothes and some gold and things like that. So th these poems are, are, are believed to carry the barakah, the presence of the prophet within them. And so uh, for forms of Sufism that are particularly, I mean, all forms of Sufism are kind of prophet-centric, you know, everything's kind of following in the footsteps of the prophet. But in these ones in which these kind of visionary encounters and direct uh, personal connections with the prophet are are, are really central. Um, this poetry obviously plays a, a really important role. Uh, another great example, I mean, the, the founding of the Tijaniya, Shaykh Ahmed Tijani was in the uh, desert oasis of Abu Samrun, and then the prophet appears to him in a waking vision and instructs him and becomes his spiritual guide. So the um, amongst the Tijaniya, which is by far the most popular Sufi order in West Africa, this kind of direct encounter and direct guidance of, of the Prophet and this direct close personal relationship with the Prophet plays a really, really important role. And uh, just as the Prophet's companions addressed him and praised him with poetry, um, those who seek to be the spiritual companions of, of the Prophet um, direct their praise and love and devotion to him through these poetic forms. So it's, 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 it's a long story, but... Um, Praising the Prophet in his own language is something that uh, is really important in traditions of West African Sufism and, and, and has been for centuries. Well, thank you. You've you've given us so much food for thought is, is, is too banal an expression there. I was really struck by that beautiful phrase you mentioned as the or saying of the Sufis being caught between silence and speech of the the problem of uh, yeah, as you say, ex expressing the the ineffable. And and I think this also brings us to the, this other key idea that you mentioned of the the notion of a barzakh, uh, a Quranic and Arabic term that 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 means the the middle space or the intermediary zone or in this case something that can mediate between the ineffable divine realms, ineffable experience, and the the smaller realm of human understanding, which of course can enter these ineffable realms but how does then it, it speak them how does it communicate these experiences and poetry then as you mentioned i think a really profound idea that is beyond the literary into the 
the metaphysical and the existential. That poetry is a barzakh. It's a means of of uh, of joining different levels of of human being. And one thing I I forgot to mention, I wanted to, was the aspect of love. That's that's really really important in this and poetry being a kind of language of love. Obviously, no. If you fall in love, all the, the the love songs on the radio start being cheesy and start making sense. And love for the prophet, in particular, uh, being really key, described as the the engine, you could say, or the wind at the back of the of of the Sufi path. Um, and then a lot of these forms of Sufism being described as the, the the reason for creation of the world was kind of love for the God, love the prophet Muhammad wanted to bring the prophet into being, wanted to see his names and qualities, loved to see his names and qualities reflected. Uh, in in the prophet, and then on for our part, uh, Sufis, West African Sufis, but Sufis in general love to quote the verse of the Quran for Surah Al Imran: "If you love God, then follow me, and God will love you." Um, you know, God says to the prophet, "If you love God, then follow me, and God will love you." So, love being this really important part of the of the Sufi tradition, um, really of the Islamic tradition, as the prophet even I think said in one hadith, "No one believes until I'm more beloved to him than his." mother and father and children and wealth and all of all of these things and the kind of expression of that love uh as we heard in the earlier poem of sheikh ibrahim's that i that i tried to recite for you it's really really extreme kind of all-consuming love for the prophet um and through the prophet's uh, love of god as well um is is poetry poetry is a kind of natural way to express this this kind of it's a kind of language of love um and so given the, the 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 premium or the central importance of love for the prophets um and and not really being separate but from love for god but love for god and love for the prophet being really really important uh, poetry really lends itself to that as a kind of um wonderful beautiful way to express that love and cultivate that love as well too indeed and i think it's 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 i think rarely expressed or, or widely recognized enough the the importance of love in, in islamic thought and expression as the primary force that that the, the primary divine force that drives the creation of of the universe first the creation of the prophet muhammad before time and indeed then of of, of earth and of humankind then but also within the the bigger metaphysical spectrum uh, that you've been describing for us that the that love is on the one hand the the it's the power of tanzi and tashbi as it would be said in the language of arabic metaphysics is the power that sort of drives god's revelation or creation or unfolding do, do drives the creation of the world but is also the power that allows humans to travel back towards their divine origins so the power of tanzi and tashbi the and in this sense then poetry is becomes the the vehicle for cultivating love which allows the the Salik, the, the the Muslim traveler, to travel back towards their divine origin, and in this sense, then going back, I suppose, to the earlier point that you were making of of poems do things. They can cause miracles. They can be expression of of, of God's kindness. I mean, the word you often use for a miracle in uh, uh, Arabic, a karam, a karamat, is an expression of God's kindness. So they can, in loving kindness, miracles can. Sorry, poems can make manifest or, or, or god's loving kindness as miracles but they can also then cultivate the state of love to, to the state of love through muhammad to drive people to bring people uh, along the journey back towards their divine source 
And that's hence this explains then the rationale, doesn't it? I'm just commenting on what you've been explaining to us of why so many Sufi masters would would set their disciples in West Africa or elsewhere, read, recite this poem because that will cultivate then this this love that will draw you back then uh, to your divine source. So I'd oh, like to you, to focus then on. Oh yeah, please come back in. Uh, uh, even beyond going back to the divine source, so within uh, these traditions. There are different kinds of fana of annihilation. So there's um, and within the actually it's not just the Tijani tradition, but it's particularly emphasized in the Tijani uh, tradition. The the end goal is not just uh, back to the divine source and you just annihilation in God. It's not just the drop falls back into the ocean or the moth goes into the candle flame and but the after that. Uh, is what uh, they're, they're really interested in. And that's what's sometimes called the fana of fana, the annihilation of annihilation, or the term baqa, uh, subsistence. Um, and the way uh, I explain it, kind of cribbing off of Sheikh Barnyas's description, is at the beginning of the spiritual journey, the, the aspirant, the murid, sees things and doesn't see God. When they achieve fana, which is for them kind of an intermediate step in the spiritual journey, you see God and you don't see things, right? But you're kind of useless to other people around you. You know, you can't drive a car, you can't cook food, you can't do anything if you're in that kind of state of annihilation. You just, all you see is God. Um, uh, but what you then want to do is come back to the state of Baqa, um, to, uh, which is actually going in a certain sense deeper into God. You can say coming back, but in another sense, you can say going deeper, um, which is then described as seeing God in things and things in God. So it's a kind of more complete union with God, a kind of more complete intimacy with God. And that state of Baqa, that station of Baqa, is exemplified by the, the person of the Prophet. Um, and so for in a lot of these texts, the annihilation in the person of the Prophet, what's called Fanafi Rasul, comes after Fanafila. It comes after annihilation in God. So first you have annihilation in God, then after that, as you go deeper, you get annihilation in, in the prophet. You kind of achieve the kind of intimacy and closeness with God that the prophet in, uh, enjoyed, or you know, following in the footsteps of the prophet as, as closely um, as you can. So it's a, as you said, it's a kind of, you get created through love, you return to God through love, but then you also keep going. The, the, the cycle keeps going and you come back in a certain sense down to the world, even though coming back down is, also going deeper in um, in the footsteps of, of of the prophets, and so this is again why I think this the, the prophet love of the prophets and this praise poetry is so central because the ultimate goal, even though it sounds paradoxical, isn't just annihilation in God, but it's this baqa, it's this subsistence which is identified with the person, the figure of of, of the prophet. Um, so it's, uh, I think, actually from South Asia, there's a good uh, poem by um, Sheikh uh, Baralvi. says the two worlds are seeking God and God is seeking Muhammad. So the, 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 the Sufi poets and aspirants and uh, reciters are not just seeking God, um, just not just seeking to go back to the divine origin, but seeking to follow the prophet and going back to the origin and then kind of coming back to the world without ever leaving the divine presence. Well, that's a very nice uh, link, actually, Aludamini, because we, we've just had on Akbar's Chamber uh, an episode on Ahmed Reza Khan Bavelvi, the, the South Asian 
uh, Muslim teacher who died in 1924, one of her, Usha Sanyal. So again, it's it's very helpful that it's you're making there this connection to teachings that are, are not uniquely or, or and still less kind of, what's uh, um, um, what I'm looking for, kind of eccentrically West African. These are really core Muslim doctrines, the the terms and the 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 ideas, uh, the teachings of fanam baqa of 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 annihilation in God and then survival in God and indeed in the world in a new way. These are really take us back in terms that at least to the eight hundreds in Baghdad when Sufi theorists were plotting out this 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 path, and the role of poetry again, just to emphasize that, is that as, as poetry is an art that. That, that brings about and helps people cultivate the state. It made me think really just in a in a parallel there with, with art in the Christian Catholic tradition of art that does things. Art is meant to bring about a certain uh a certain state in and uh in the in the viewer. But of course it's in, in Islamic tradition, it's 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 poetry and the word that is so much more important than the visual or the plastic arts. So it, you've also brought us really towards the, the next question there that, that I was thinking of, which is which is focusing on these, uh, in many ways, perhaps one of the most powerful dimensions of, of Mahdi poetry, which is their relationship to Muslim teachings about the nature of, of true existence, of what it is to be or exist truly, fully, etc. And specifically, I'm thinking here of the Quranic verse 1714, quote, the seven heavens and the earth and all that they contain praise him. And there is no thing which does not him his praise. End of quotation. Of course, the him here is presumably God, but still this notion of, of praise and hymning. So how do Madhi poems then as acts of praise relate to both this Quranic verse and to wider doctrines about the, the nature of being, of truly being alive? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. And uh, yeah, the verse Kulushen Yusabi Hubi Hamdihi is a favorite of uh, Sufis to comment on because the he, his praise can be its own praise as well as God's praise and gets taken up in lots of different directions by Ibn Arabi and the, the, the later school. But the, the, the basic idea behind this, you can kind of think about this as in, in the Quranic account, God says, Kun, God speaks and things come into existence. So God kind of speaks everything into existence. So it's not limited to the Islamic tradition, but you have the idea of the world, creation coming into being through speech. All of creation is speech. And so you're a word, I'm a word, or you're a letter, I'm a letter, the tree is a letter, and these all come together to form. All of creation is, is God's speech and kind of existential speech. Um, and one way to, that uh, some of these Sufi poets take this up is, well, what's order? The creation is ordered. It's orderly. It's created by Padrin. You know, it maps onto mathematics, which is its own kind of wonderful miracle um, that the mathematical theories that we have somehow map onto what's going on outside there in, 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 in the world. Um, but ordered speech is precisely poetry. So in a certain sense, the whole world is, the whole all of creation is a poem recited by God. And just like poems have multiple levels of meaning, there's the apparent form and then the different levels of meaning. The world has different levels of meaning, different levels of existence, different levels of reality. Um, and in terms of Madih, this gets taken up again by people in the Akbari tradition, but even Sufis outside of this as well too, 
The idea being that this existential speech of God is that which displays God's qualities. Again, getting coming from the idea of the, from the Quran that everything that exists is an ayah, a sign or a symbol reflecting God's names and attributes. So everything that exists is it's it's kind of like a funhouse mirror displaying displaying different uh, attributes aspects of the of the divine reality. And so praise uh, in in this sense is simply speech that uh, brings forth or brings out the positive attributes of something. And since all of God's attributes are positive, all of existence is in essence praising God. Its very existence is its praise of God. Uh, and then in addition to its existence, being a praise of God, being that its very existence displays the positive attributes of the divine reality, it, everything in existence, then because it comes from the divine life, because it participates in the nature of God, um, in a certain sense, echoes that divine act. So God creates, and everything that God creates, because it, it reflects part of him, uh, it also is kind of like God, and that it creates its own things. Right, so birds sing, bees buzz, we talk, and so all of these things are echoes of that divine act of creation. So just as the whole universe can be understood in this sense as a kind of praise poem, human beings then being the God's creations that uh, reflect God in his totality the best, according to the Sufi tradition, we also compose praise poetry uh, kind of in imitation of, as an echo of this cosmogonic act of, uh, you could say, uh, poetic recitation or creation that brings the whole world into being. And this is particularly important with the, the figure of the Prophet uh, Muhammad, whose name actually means the most praised one, Muhammad, uh, the praised one. So if everything that exists is a form of praise of, of, of God, then the highest form of praise would be that in which you have the best praiser with the best form of praise uh, praising the best thing. So best praised, best praised, and best praised. Best praiser, best praised, best praised. And so you get that in the person of the Prophet Muhammad because you have the best praiser, God, who's praising himself by manifesting his qualities and his qual divine names and attributes are manifest most fully, most clearly, most completely in the mirror of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, he, is the one, the, he is the person, the creation, the best of creation in whom God's divine names and attributes are most clearly seen, according to all these Sufi traditions. And these attributes, these manifestation of the positive qualities of the divine go back to the best praised, being God himself. So the Prophet Muhammad unites the best praiser, God, the best form of praise, the Prophet Muhammad was the best of creation, and the best praised. Um, and so what the, the po Sufi poets in particular who are doing this Madiha Nabawi tradition is they're kind of following in the divine footsteps. God's best praise of himself is the creation of the existential person of the prophet. And so the Sufi poets, in trying to do give the best form of praise, uh, praise the prophet. Um, uh, so God, to praise himself, creates the person of the prophet. The Sufis, in order to praise God, uh, praise the prophet, uh, because he is the best, God's best form of praise. And so they say, this is why the prophet is called Muhammad, the praised one, Ahmed, the most praised. They say that's why in the day of judgment he's given the banner of praise, the walhamd. Um, and so there's there's this uh, uh, existential or ontological dimension to praise, in which everything that exists is praise. And so to compose praise poetry is to kind of participate in this praise economy, 
in a, in a certain sense. Uh, but even wonderful hadith that um, you see cited a lot in the commentaries on this tradition about on the day of judgment, the prophet will stand under the, the banner of praise and will praise God with such praises that uh, no ear has ever heard. And then as a result of these praises, he'll be granted the power of intercession for all of creation. Um, so there's this kind of economy of praise and intercession, right? And so uh, the Sufi poets are then participating in this as well too, in praising the prophet, they're then getting connected to his power of intercession uh, and that, that kind of spiritual power to transmit God's mercy uh, to the worlds. You've given us a real sense there of, of on the one hand, the extraordinary profundity of, of of these ideas of this tradition that are that are just explored ad infinitum because this is the whole you know the infinite possibilities of of creation of uh, and of human exploration of it the, the extraordinary infinite profundity and yet at the same time and you've managed to do this extremely well give us a sense of the, the overall coherence of of the extraordinary range of expressions and possibilities but there's a coherence that holds all of these explorations together and and in many ways i suppose this is what poetry and these madhi poems are trying to do they're trying to encapsulate this uh this in, infinite possibilities of, of the profundities being explored here and yet they're metaphysical they're doctrinal they're their existential uh, coherence altogether and in an encapsulated form of a poem. We've been going then over quite a few centuries, right back to, on the one hand, the, the time of the Prophet Muhammad in the seventh century, on the other hand, the beginnings of time, the beginnings of creation, which of course is a, you know, with this uh, this tradition of praising the Prophet and praising the Prophet as the, the pre-eternal Nur Muhammadi, the light of Muhammad is about. But we should also take a look at the world today, the contemporary words, because although Madhi had been written for centuries, some of the greatest West African composers have lived in the past half century. And you, you've recited for a Sheikh Ibrahim Niyaz, who died in 1975. So how and why is this great tradition kept alive in West Africa today? So West Africa is unique in um, today in the world. I think the Pew Charitable Trust did a study back in 2014, and they found that uh, amongst Muslims that they surveyed worldwide, Sufism was more popular in West Africa than any other region. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for this. Rudolf Ware goes into some of the histories of colonial politics and things like that as to why this is the case in West Africa. But basically, what one of the reasons is as the... Uh, traditional kingdoms and other political structures were collapsing in the colonial period. A lot of people rushed to these new Sufi orders that were establishing themselves. Um, and so that really swelled the ranks of, of the Sufi orders in the, in the period and increased the, the popularity of, of, of Sufism in the region. Also, the in institutionalized Sufism in terms of Sufi orders is relatively new in West Africa. That really only comes within the 18th century with the Tijaniya, before you had these loose networks of masters and disciples and kind of pre-Tariqa Sufism. You had Sosalas from the Qadariya and the Shadaliya and other orders transmitted, but you didn't have the kind of institutional structure that you see earlier in the, in the Eastern uh, parts of the Muslim world. So the Sufi orders are kind of newer, 
colonialism destroyed a lot of old social networks and make the, makes these new institutions of Sufi orders really, really um, important and uh, very vibrant. And so out of this very vibrant tradition, lots and lots of poetry uh, gets produced. And part of the reason why it keeps going is um, it's beautiful and it's fun. Uh, people really, and the wonderful recitations on, on YouTube of people smiling, people dancing. In, in Nigeria, especially northern Nigeria, people have the, uh, the called diwanis. They're basically parties where people will, on a loudspeaker, be reciting Sheikh Banyas's poetry or Usman Danfodios for other Madih poetry, and people are swaying back and forth and dancing and singing and, and, and having a great time. So there's a lot of joy in this poetry as well, too. And also the, the vibrancy of the spiritual traditions that they're coming from. So you, you have people who are actively engaging in these traditions, who are having their own spiritual experiences, who are having their own understanding. And so this, these poetic traditions, they're really living traditions. People are commenting on them. People are writing tahmis, like kind of expanded versions of the poems. So you take like Sheikh Ibrahim's poem or, you know, Busiri's Borda, and then you add your own three hemi-stitches in between there too. So it's a really active and very living tradition where people are still listening to it, not just in their cars, but singing it at parties, at uh, family gatherings and ceremonies. Um, and people are composing their own poetry in this tradition as well too. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, one of the winners of this uh, you know, Arabic poetry competition on TV was Muhammad Al-Amin Jab, who was a murid and whose main inspiration for his poetry was Sheikh Hamadou Bamba. He recites Sheikh Hamadou Bamba's poetry almost every day. So these, these traditions are very living today and have now spread from West Africa to the whole world uh, through the West African diaspora. Professor Aludabili Ogunaika, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Da 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 da